All right, this morning we're talking about witnesses. Um, a lot of you know I'm kind of a history buff and I, I was a history major in college and while I like a good history book very much, I really have a soft spot for what, what people call primary sources. Primary sources are like letters and diaries and official reports and documents and eyewitness accounts and things like that. It's just the most fun to me to actually read what people said at the time. So history books always include bits of those things, but it's fun to sometimes just to actually read rather large segments of things that we, I, have a, I have a book, for example, in the Protestant Reformation that's entirely the writings from the time. It's just got little blurbs and then long sections of people that lived then and describing what was going on then. So I just love that, to be able to do that. And that's not to say that um, primary sources are trustworthy necessarily. Primary sources are not always accurate, just like all the stuff that goes around us today is not always accurate, right? Humans can lie, after all, or be misinformed, or have reasons to omit things or add things, and uh, you know, people in the past, they knew what propaganda was too, they just didn't use that word, but that's what they did too. So historians have to take all that into account when they're writing histories, but it's fun to look at the primary source material. Uh, stuff that doesn't make it into all the history books. So um, I have another book actually called Eyewitness to History and it, that's all it is. It's a big fat book, just little sections of actual eyewitness accounts of various events down through history and it's really interesting. All kinds of stuff. The Hindenburg disaster, a cholera epidemic, the charge of the light brigade, burning the Archbishop of Canterbury to the stake. I mean all those wonderful <laughs> exciting things. So, and, and I bring that up because John's gospel is, is crafted to bring forth the testimony of witnesses at the time of Christ and what was going on there. And I say crafted because the gospels are not news reports. That's not what they are. They are persuasive documents dedicated to the good news. So that what they offer us is selective to, to make a point. So it's not like an, a total story all the time about something. It's, it's purposeful. So John, the apostle that wrote the Gospel of John, was a witness to most of what he writes, um, but he's not giving a report. Uh, he's building a case so that you will believe and put your faith in Jesus Christ as God and Savior. And um, so there's fewer stories in his Gospel than other Gospels. Uh, fewer but with more detail and much more dialogue and more interaction between Jesus and various individuals or various groups of individuals. And John arranges his stories about Jesus with a very clear theological purpose. He's not just telling, oh, I've got a wonderful Jesus story for you. It's, he's, got, he's going somewhere. And that's why the whole thing started with a prologue that was 18 verses long, which we've been studying for not too long, but a reasonable amount of time, right? That's right, thank you, Mary. <laughs> So John is going to back up everything he said in the prologue about the word become flesh. The word that was with God and was God and who became flesh. He's going to back that up with eyewitness testimony. From, so now he's starting to tell the tale in verse 19. That's, what's, that's where all this is going. So the prologue is over. The first 18 verses have occupied our attention for a few weeks. And now the story begins, the narrative. So the last three verses of the prologue um, give us these words about Jesus. So back up to verse 16 and it says, um, For of his fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God 
who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. So what's he saying there? Jesus is very different from Moses, right? Moses was a man used by God. Jesus is God in human flesh, revealed, he revealed God to us in his person. That's the big difference between them, right? That's a huge difference. And the witnesses are going to testify to this. And the first witness we already met in the prologue in verses 6 through 8 of the prologue. And that was a man we called John the Baptist. So there's the Apostle John who wrote the, the gospel we're reading. And there's John the Baptist who um, ministered leading up to Jesus there. So verse 6, I'm going to back up to verse 6 real quick. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. There's the purpose statement. He was not the light but he came to testify about the light. So the prologue stated that the mission of John the Baptist is to testify to the light. It also calls him the true light in the, in the prologue talking about Jesus. So that testimony, that testimony is given first place in, in the gospel here. Now the other gospels talk about John the Baptist in ways that this gospel doesn't. It tells us what he dressed like, what he ate, um, his teachings, his teachings outside of just proclaiming the coming of Christ, his, his uh, gospel presentation if you will, calling upon people to repent and all of that, all of that was in there. John uh, in this gospel is, we're only interested in his testimony. That's all that John, the, the apostle John wants to say about him what his testimony was. So all those other details are left out. So, and, and John the Baptist is the man, right? I mean, he's like, his life work was actually prophesied in the Old Testament. That's not true of very many people. And he is a prophet himself. He also is re re was regarded by his contemporaries as a very godly man, right? And what did Jesus say about him? No man born ever born was greater than John the Baptist. He's like one of the cream of the crop, top people, godly, godly man wonderful man, very special person. So now this account that John, beginning in verse 19 here, that John gives us begins well after John the Baptist had been preaching and baptizing and doing his thing. And due to a lot of rumors and speculation about him because he was very famous, a formal delegation was sent from Jerusalem of priests and Levites to interview John. And in this interview John made very clear statements about Jesus. He made declarations and that's why John the Apostle is giving us this account. So right away we learn what the delegation was after in verse 19. This is the testimony of John. When the Jews said, notice he says testimony. He's bearing witness right? And we're going to see what that witness is. This is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him who are you? They wanted to know who he claimed to be. Now his popularity was hard to exaggerate. It, he was very famous. And the fact that he baptized Jews caused a lot of talk. Especially among the religious leaders. So um, there's a lot of questions they have. And they want to know who he is. So his, his presence is so powerful, is just his manner, and his ministry was so unusual that people were saying he was Elijah. 
Okay, that was one of the things they thought about him. Who is the promised front runner of the Messiah? Elijah comes before the Messiah. And if you know your Old Testament, you know that Elijah never died. There's only two people in the Bible before the New Testament time that never died. And one was Enoch way, way, way back in Genesis and the other one is Elijah. And Elijah was taken up in a chariot of fire. I just mentioned that movie, Chariots of Fire. That, that, that's how he went up, right? So um, that's that most significantly about him is the last words of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter four, the last chapter of the Old Testament is about Elijah. And it says, Malachi 4 verse 5, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. That's how the Old Testament ends. Could John the Baptist be Elijah sent back from heaven to prepare the way for the Messiah? Hmm. Also some people speculated that John the Baptist might be the exceptional prophet that Moses talked about. So Moses said something really intriguing in Deuteronomy chapter 18. He prophesied that one day there would come a prophet like him. Now, why, now what's different about Moses? Well there were lots of prophets we know after Moses, you know Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel and all those guys. And they, they all had one basic message, all the prophets that followed Moses and their message was follow Moses, <laughs> obey Moses, obey the law because Moses was the channel through which God gave his law, right? He was the law giver. So he was more than a prophet. He was the law giver. The whole religious system of Israel and the code of ethics of Israel came through Moses. All of it. So Moses was more than a prophet. He was the lawgiver. He had a special job. A prophet like Moses would not do what Isaiah and Jeremiah and Elijah did at pointing to Moses, you need to obey Moses, a prophet like Moses could actually be a lawgiver himself and change the law or adjust it or make new declarations or start something new. So um, they thought maybe John the Baptist was that person. Some people thought that. So some Jews thought the prophet like me that Moses talks about was the Messiah. Other ones thought, no, he's a different person than the Messiah. So there was all kinds of theological speculation and interest and all that. Anyway, a lot of that speculation centered around this very special man that everybody recognized as incredibly godly, very powerful, and calling on everybody to repent. And that's John the Baptist. So um, the religious leadership wanted to know what John said about himself because he never presented himself as anything other than just repeat preaching repentance and teaching the people how God wants them to behave. So he never said I'm so bo- so and so or I'm so and so. He never did that. So it was all speculation, all talk, right? It, but the religious leaders, they didn't like John. They were not well disposed towards John. He'd already kind of offended them. He was, well, he was acting outside of their authority for one thing. He didn't need any okay from them to do what he was doing. And he was acting on his own. But also, you know, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he didn't like them either. And uh, he had things against them. Now, not personally. He was against what they were doing. He would, in fact, you know, he said some gentle words for them in Matthew chapter 3, verse 7. 
it says when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism he said to them you brood of vipers <laughs> who warned you to flee from the wrath to come so nice warm <laughs> inviting welcoming sort of thing and he goes on therefore bring fruit in keeping with repentance and do not suppose that you can say to yourselves we have Abraham for our father for I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham the axe is already laid at the root of the tree therefore every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire gentle man <laughs> and he's saying this to the religious elites of Israel the people that everybody else thought were the godly ones. That's what sparked that. So repentance was John's theme. But the prevailing religious opinion of the day. Among these religious elites. The Pharisees and people like that. Were that you were saved. Because you belonged to the covenant of Abraham. You were saved by birth. That's why he brings that up. You're a child of Abraham through the covenant and if you keep all our little regulations and laws the ones that the Pharisees sort of invented and we're always arguing about that but everybody was supposed to conform to which they, they said was a hedge around the law. You don't want to ever break the law do you? Well then you keep all these little rules and you'll never get to the law. You'll, you won't even have to worry about it because you'll be, you'll be fine. And so they added all kinds of rules to that. And they tended to be self-righteous because they kept their own rules. Even though Jesus would later point out that they didn't keep the law. They kept their own rules. So it's a very. It's, it's bad when the religious leaders are self-righteous fools. And self-deceived. And Jesus called it the blind leading the blind. That's not good for any people. So John is calling them out. They wanted to be seen as holy. That was their primary thing. It wasn't to please God. It was that people would see them as holy. That was what their big goal was. So. They were insulted just by the call to repent was insulting to them as it is with people today. Most Americans today would if you tell them to repent they would be personally insulted and think that you're a nut. So these guys though they were trusting in their pedigree you know children of Abraham that's who we are and their spiritual comfort if they sought, sought to have comfort was I keep all my little rules that we've made for ourselves. So. Jesus was very straightforward about their real motives and he called them hypocrites, hypocrites, actors, which is what that's a Greek word that means actor. So they wanted to be seen by men. So this delegation of those people come sent by those people it tells you in a little bit but he sent they sent priests and Levites who would be in the same boat with them and they asked John who are you? By the way I should mention that the apostle John who writes this was we don't know for absolute certainty but he probably was a disciple of John the Baptist and could have well have been here when this delegation came to John. He might have been present and actually an eyewitness again. He would certainly have heard about it at the time. So the question who are you? It's a, it's a pretty broad question. It's a general question. He could say well, I'm John. <laughs> Good pleased to meet you. But um, he knows what they're asking so he answers straight away verse 20 I'm not the Christ. So if, if the Messiah's speculation is going around, that's not me. He confessed, verse 20, and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. So he wants it absolutely clear that he himself is not the Messiah, and he doesn't want anybody saying he's the Messiah. So they ask him if he's Elijah, the forerunner of the Messiah, like we talked about. 
verse 21. They said, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Okay. Not the Christ. Not the Elijah. Is he a prophet like Moses? Verse 21. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Okay, so on to verse 22. And I think I can hear Lieutenant Columbo in this statement by the, <laughs> by the priests a little bit here. And they Sir, you know, if you could just answer one more question. <laughs> one more question. I need it from my report. You know, the captain at the station, he'll ask me why I didn't ask you who you are. So just from my report, sir, I've got to fill that in. So, um, verse 22. They said to him, who are you so that we may give an answer to those who sent us? That's what I mean by the report. <laughs> What do you say about yourself? So here's his chance. And he actually has an answer for this. There's somebody else mentioned in the Old Testament who is not named. Doesn't say Elijah. It doesn't say the prophet. This unnamed person is described in Isaiah. I read it a little bit earlier. And it's, it's just a voice in the prophecy. So the book of Isaiah, you know, it's structured in a really interesting way. Um, it's kind of got two parts, so sort of three parts. It's a long book, right? 66 chapters. We've been reading it right now in our Through the Bible in the Year group. And almost all of the chapters are prophecies that are written in Hebrew poetry. Almost the entire book is Hebrew poetry. Fortunately, Isaiah is great at Hebrew poetry, so it's not as hard as some of the other books, books in poetry. But almost all of these chapters are, are that. Except in the middle, chapter 36, 37, 38, and 39 are a story. They're stories about Isaiah and Hezekiah, the king of Judah. So that's the narrative part. But you've got the first half and you've got the second half and in the middle is that little narrative section there. Otherwise, other than that middle section, the book divides very neatly into two portions. So the prophecies before the stories are mainly about God's judgment that's coming on Israel, on Judah. And there's a lot of wonderful parts about the Messiah added into that first part. There's also a wonderful sort of apocalyptic section starting about chapter 24. It's called Isaiah's Apocalypse. It's a lot like the book of Revelation in some ways. And then there's the second half of the book. And the second half of the book after the little narrative portions. It's very comforting. It's, it's God's promises to, are going to be fulfilled. And there's chapter after chapter of that. And there's a lot about the Messiah there too. But God's going to bless Israel. God's going to restore Israel. God's going to be there for Israel. So it's all happy kind of talk right so the first half is uh, very different than the second half and the second half is way more positive than the first half the second half begins with Isaiah chapter 40 which as I mentioned earlier this morning is one of the great chapters of the Bible and it begins like this comfort oh comfort my people says your God speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended. That her iniquity has been removed. That she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Then verse 3. And I read this earlier. A voice is calling. Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain be made low. And let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then... In other words, make everything really easy for the one who's coming. That's, that's the message there, using poetic language, right? 
Verse 5, then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And then if you jump down to verse 10 of Isaiah chapter 40, it says, behold, the Lord will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. His reward is with him and his recompense before him. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock in his arm. He will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. So get ready is what the voice is calling out. Get ready. The Lord is coming. And John the Baptist says, I'm that voice. You guys know about Isaiah 40, right? That's me. I am that voice calling in the wilderness. So the delegation asking John who he was knew their scriptures. In fact, those scriptures were the hope of Israel. And John says, I'm the voice. And the voice says, the Lord is coming. And you'd better make your, his path smooth. You'd better make it yourselves right for when he comes, you're ready to receive him. The voice is calling. Now that voice might well be the voice of Elijah at the end of the age. Elijah is not done. We know that. Jesus actually talked about John fulfilling Elijah's role but also in the same breath he said Elijah was still to come. That's one of the great interesting passages in Matthew uh, 17 there. After Jesus appeared in glory with Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration, the disciples had all kinds of questions about Elijah. So in Matthew chapter 17 verse 10 they say, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus answered and said, Elijah is coming. Now John the Baptist is out of the picture by this time. He says Elijah is coming and will restore all things. So when the Messiah comes to make the world righteous and govern the world, Elijah will introduce him. He will prepare the way. Then he, but Jesus said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. <laughs> Took his head off. But also, also the son of man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. Was John the Baptist Elijah? He said no. Well he wasn't. He was not Elijah dead in heaven returning to earth. He was not Elijah. He was not Elijah descended from heaven. But he did fulfill Elijah's role. There had to be an Elijah for Jesus the first time he came to truly offer himself to Israel. Somebody had to be that voice in the wilderness to prepare the way. Elijah had to be there. There had to be an Elijah ministry there and John fulfilled that. If they had accepted Jesus and he became the king of Israel instead of crucify him then John would have been the Elijah person. And Jesus is really clear about that in Matthew chapter 11 verse 12 where he said from the days of John the Baptist until now the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent men take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John and if you are willing to accept it John himself is Elijah who was to come. He who has ears to hear let him hear. If they had accepted it they didn't. Did God know they were not going to accept it? Yes he did. Did God plan for their lack of acceptance? Of course he did. Jesus had to die on the cross for our sins. All of that had to happen. That was foreordained before the foundation of the world. But a genuine offer was made and if they had accepted Christ then John the Baptist would have been Elijah. But still God knew that wasn't going to happen. So God's plan is working out. He made a genuine offer. Brought the Messiah to them. They killed the Messiah. 
But there had to be that Elijah voice and John was that voice. So John isn't the Christ. He's not the the prophet. He's not Elijah personally. Who is he then? A voice in the wilderness. That's what he says. That answer won't satisfy the captain back at police headquarters. I mean the high priest back in Jerusalem. That's not going to satisfy them. So John is doing something John is doing something wild, wildly new, and I don't mean the way he dressed. It, it, he's baptizing children of Abraham. Now we think, okay, well that's good, we all got baptized. You don't get it, you don't know. I mean, in baptism, baptism was only for Gentiles. Jews did practice baptism, but only for people that were converting to it, Judaism. And to become a child of the covenant, they went through this washing ceremony, this baptism ceremony. So they all knew about that. It was to wash away their dirty Gentileness. You know, Jews wouldn't even let a Gentile come under their roof. They wouldn't eat with them. I mean, that's why Pilate even had to go out to the, to the priest. He, they wouldn't come under his roof. And they were so, um, you know, they had to bow to all these kind of customs in those days. But for a, a Gentile to become a true convert, a full convert to Israel, they had to undergo this baptism to be regarded as part of the seed of Abraham, to be regarded as in the Abrahamic covenant. And so by doing this, what's John saying? Every Jew alive in Israel needs to undergo this conversion. They all need to get washed. Being a child of Abraham, physically descended from Abraham, has no saving significance whatsoever. The Jew has an advantage. They have the covenants, they have the law, they know God's will. But they personally need to repent and be changed to receive the Messiah. They have to go through that. Now, brothers and sisters, right there is the difference between religion and a true living walk with Jesus Christ, with God, a walk with God. Religion is primarily a matter of rituals and morals. But a living faith is internal. It's a matter of the heart. Loving God above all things. Jesus said that was the great commandment, to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. A Pharisee did not love God that way. They loved their religion, and they loved the praise of men. But they needed to repent as well. All of Israel needed to repent. All human beings need to repent from every place including the children of Abraham. So John is acting like the true seed of Abraham needed something more. He was baptizing people who were already children of Abraham. But no man was clean because he was a descendant of Abraham. Not one person is clean because they're a descendant of Abraham. Not one person. No one is born in favor with God. We're born in sin. That's what the Bible teaches. Because mankind is fallen and we're sinners by nature. So the Jews only advantage again like I said was that they had the truth. So the next section verse 29 through 34 is pretty interesting. So verse 29 says the next day and there's there, a lot's going to happen in the first two chapters here over the course of about five days. So the next day so this is the day after John was interviewed by the delegation of priests and Levites from Jerusalem. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him. He is, being, is John the Baptist. So the day after those guys came, Jesus is coming to him. He sees Jesus. Is this a social call? Is, is it a coincidence? Did Jesus just happen along the day after those guys came to see him? I don't think so. And I'll tell you why I don't think so. Um, 
we can actually determine when this happened. So verse 29 through 34 he's describing, he's, John is going to describe what he saw when he baptized Jesus. Okay, he's going to talk about that. Where did Jesus go after his baptism? Into the wilderness, right? For 40 days to be tempted by the devil and to fast for 40 days. And he came up from the waters of, after he came up from the waters of baptism, you'll remember, a voice out of heaven said, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. And then the spirit led him out into the wilderness to be tempted, right? So Jesus, that began the ministry of Jesus. And then he went out there for those 40 days and then here he is coming to John. Well how do you know it was right after that? Well the indication is in John chapter 2 we have the story of the miracle of Jesus changing the water into wine in Cana. And it says that was his first miracle. So if he's just getting started on his ministry and going into the wilderness was his preparation and now he's coming out and that's his first miracle which is only a couple days after this then this is, has to be really early after he was in the wilderness and did his fast and defeated the devil in temptation. Has to be right away. So it could be he left the wilderness and came straight to John. That's very possible. In fact it's likely. So he sees him coming. Okay. Probably two reasons for him coming to John. One is some of John's disciples are going to now become Jesus disciples and he's going to go collect them. That's one and we'll talk about that at the end of chapter one next week. The other reason would be John is a prophet and as Jesus comes off his successful resistance of temptation now he's approved he's spotless in the eyes of God he's sinless. Now that he's approved John can announce to all those around him in his circles who Jesus is coming into the world. So first Jesus had to prove himself victorious over temptation in his case by personally battling with Satan and coming out victorious. He came through all of that without fail proven righteous without moral blemish of any kind. In sacrificial language you could say he was spotless right. So when John sees him what does he say verse 29 behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's one of the most important verses in the whole Bible. In fact John the Apostle very likely was there when John the Baptist said it. So he's recording something he actually heard. He's bearing witness possibly. But verse 29 is so important. In fact it's so well known that even some translations that think the word behold is above your comprehension still put it there. Some of them do. So why is John's declaration so important? It, it tells the ultimate purpose for God becoming a true man. Why did God become a man? Why did the word become flesh? And he's going to tell us what that great work was. In verse 18 um, we know he came to explain God back up in verse 18 at the end of the prologue there. He came to reveal the fullness of God and grace and truth. We talked about that. And here grace and truth are revealed in that Jesus came to give us eternal life by dying as the great and true sacrificial lamb. That's the first time it's said in the gospel. So John chapter 2 verse 13 chapter 2 verse 13 it tells us that the Passover feast was just days away from when this happened. So Jesus coming out of the wilderness Passover's almost there. He comes to John 
John makes this declaration that he is the Lamb of God and then a few days later they're all going to be celebrating Passover and sacrificing lambs. John's father by the way was a priest right who worked the temple he would have offered many Passover lambs over the years and if he was still around at this particular time he was probably doing it getting ready to do that again. And in John chapter 13 you know there, that's where you have a way more information about what happened at the last supper in John's gospel than in the other gospels and there's a long dialogue Jesus with the apostles at what kind of a meal are they having? A, a Passover meal that's right exactly so it's also at the time of Passover and that distant Passover would be Jesus last Passover on earth before he offered, offered up his life by crucifixion his life was taken at Passover why? so that he could die for the sins of the world the true Lamb of God and so here years before that his first and his first moments coming out of the temptation after he's been approved and he's the spotless one John declares him to be the Lamb of God. That's what's going on here. So right from the start John identifies the Lamb and it's Christ Jesus. So that statement behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is the first indication in John's gospel not, not the last by far that Jesus is providing a substitute sacrifice for us. There's something new we learn about the word made flesh God becoming man. He came to be the Lamb. That's what we're learning now. So of course as a Jew John would not only be familiar with Passover but his dad would have he would have known all about that process of offering up lambs and stuff. So John has more to say about Jesus in verse 30. This is he on behalf of whom I said after me comes a man who has a higher rank than I for he existed before me. Remember John was six months older than Jesus we talked about this a few weeks ago but Jesus he says Jesus existed before him. So what's he pointing to? That Jesus is eternal. He exists in eternity past. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. The word existed before John. He's always been. And we're reminded again here that Jesus is the eternal God become flesh. So then as we come to verse 31 John is looking back like eight weeks or so when Jesus came to be baptized by him and John says verse 31 I did not recognize him but so that he might be manifested to Israel I came baptizing in water. So he's talking about before Jesus came he's saying I didn't know that Jesus was the Messiah. I didn't know that in our previous relationship. And they were cousins right? Jesus and John were cousins. We don't know how much interaction they had before that all happened. Maybe some, maybe very little, maybe quite a bit. We don't really know. But the families probably got together during feast times and they probably did know each other pretty well. But um, we do know from Matthew that John looked at Jesus as much more righteous than he was. Now Jesus, Jesus thought John was the greatest man that ever lived. But John knew that Jesus was more righteous than him. So when Jesus came in Matthew's gospel to be baptized John says I should be baptized by you. Right? Remember that? Because he knew that Jesus was more righteous than he was. So um, he didn't think Jesus needed to repent. If there's anybody that doesn't need repentance it's him. But he, he was saying I need to repent before you need to repent. Because I can tell that you're special. So many, many have, he may have believed that Jesus was the Messiah. Um, but he was not going to verbally affirm it until he saw the sign that God gave him to know who the Messiah was. 
So John found out or had it confirmed that Jesus was the Messiah because of an act of God. He was looking for a specific sign. So in the next verses we have his clear testimony. This, that's how this, we started this morning, right? Talking about testimony. So here's the testimony. John is bearing witness as a prophet of God, as one who receives revelation from God as to how God revealed to him that Jesus was the Messiah, officially. So his testimony is not a subjective impression. You know, I think this Jesus guy might be God. Uh, uh, he might be the Messiah. He's not saying that. That's not it. He has a sign. So verse 32, John testified saying, I have seen the spirit descending as a dove out of heaven and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, he upon whom you see the spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. In other words, he's the Messiah. So I hope you all noticed all the members of the Trinity are in that one little section there. <laughs> but um, so now we have the spirit being brought in. But God gave John a sign to look for. And the sign was that the spirit would fall and remain upon this person who is the Messiah when he comes to him. And that's Jesus. He says, I saw that. So the sign God gave me, I saw it happen with this guy, with my cousin Jesus. He doesn't say my cousin Jesus, but you get it. So then he's got a final concluding statement to make. Verse 34, I myself have seen and have testified. This is the witness part. I myself have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. There it is. So John came as a witness. We're told that way back in verse 7 of chapter 1. That word witness and testify runs all through this chapter. And if you believe that John was God's man, and everybody did seem to believe it back then, except maybe a few Pharisees and scribes and uh, priests. But God's man, John, is pointing to Jesus and saying as a prophet of God this is the sign God gave me and this is the man this is the son of God he calls him the son of God so here are the questions for you to ask yourself based on this text today who is Jesus the prophet says he's the son of God the witnesses are being called forth and they are telling us he's the lamb of God so the question for you is is he the lamb of God to you is he your lamb of God? What are you counting on to be right with God? If it's not the sacrifice of Christ, you're going to come up way short when you stand before the Lord. I'm just telling you because that's the truth. How does this whole thing apply to you? Do you owe him something for being the lamb of God? Is there some proper response to all that? What, what gratitude do you have for him being the Lamb of God? What obligation is presented to you that he's the Lamb of God? What love should you have towards him because he's the Lamb of God? I mean, think on it. If what we see here in this text is true, it's everything. It's everything. Nothing else matters compared to this. That's what you should get from this. Let's pray. Lord God, how carefully you let the Baptist know it was Jesus by whom our salvation would come. He is the Christ. God become flesh. The Lamb of God who takes away our sin. And as the Lamb, he takes it on himself. This is a love beyond comprehension because we did not deserve it. 
There are not enough ways to say thank you. But we will say thank you, Father. And we'll say it forever. Let us not forget. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.